Hey everyone, it's Raghu Marcus, and I'm back with Mind Rolling and uh, an old new friend who uh, I dearly appreciate for the kind of work that she's been doing over these last many, many years in the tech sector. And, uh, and you have heard her before on Mind Rolling. I'm laughing because I couldn't remember that I did this show uh, with her before. Uh, and uh, so you know Danielle has the Google Empathy Lab, which she runs at Google, which is the oxymoron of the century, Empathy and Google. And they, I'm sorry about that, Mr. Yeah, Google. Google Empathy Lab and the most forgettably unforgettable guest on Mind Rolling Empathy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so untrue, <laughs> so untrue. Anyhow, welcome, Ananda. <laughs> Thank you, love. Happy to be here. Always a treat to ramble and wander with you, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh before we were just bantering before, and I was showing uh, Danielle this book, uh, Cynicism and Magic from Trogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, um, which uh, she already had a copy, and I was expressing how important I thought this book was and inspiring. Uh, and uh, so I happened to, I thought, wow, this is kind of the premise for us all. And anything we're doing in our if. I mean, first premise is you realize there is a path to transform yourself out of the, the identity roles that Ram Dass talked about and the perspective of egomaniac, narcissist, which we all are to one degree or another. And uh, Trungpa is the great uh, cutter uh, below the knees. He just cuts off the bullshit. He really does. And so... I said to Ananda, you know what, I, I kind of just want to read some of this because, and just talk about it because it is so extraordinary. So do you mind, Ananda? Please, like take us off on the trunk of the magic carpet, my friend. Also cynicism and magic coming yeah. from what the hell one, of, one, one of my worlds being technology, the yeah. uh, others obviously being the spaces of spirituality and mysticism and natural wisdom and all these things. It's like cynicism and magic feels like such the, uh, both the, the struggle and the elixir of this time. So, Actually, and I thought the same, he translates these two words in ways which you would never have thought. Well, first of all, cynicism he's talking about, it's really emanates from the Buddha. You must trust your experience. So you need to be, as he, this word cynicism, he's not using in a, um, in a negative sense like we would. Like, I, mm -hmm. shit, I, I love cynicism. Boy, I watch Larry David all day long, right? He's not talking about it like that. He's talking about it as um, being able or taking the perspective of uh, not just jumping into anything without direct experience, which mm -hmm. is, and his biggest uh, thing, of course, is around meditation and the depth at which uh, one needs to go and the discipline one needs to have. Uh, so then magic. And so I did this thing with my friend David, uh, and it's a podcast is not even out. I think I did it with David. <laughs> 
Oh, God, am I getting it? Uh, magic. We never really got to magic. And I was looking at this while we were waiting to go on. So mm. I just want to... It, uh, just so everybody gets the idea of really who he is and how much he's contributed to the spiritual uh, pantheon of greatest translators of arcane information, really. So here it is magic, which is the last chapter in his book. As students and teachers, we can cut down the fortress of spiritual materialism through how we work with situations. We don't combat spiritual materialism through warfare, street fighting, or sending bombs in the mail, but by developing intelligence within ourselves. How about the contrast of bombs in the mail, street fighting, and warfare? Well, let's not do that. Let's develop intelligence with ourselves. <laughs> within ourselves, then we can work with spiritual materialism. And by the way, spiritual materialism bypasses the current word that is somewhat akin to spiritual material. We use everything on the path that is coming to us and then we're, that we're uh, moving into as a way to transform uh, and putting our ego in the same place it was before we ever knew anything about this stuff. And it is about as useful as it was before. It, I mean, it's, it's the same. So we can work with spiritual materialism so that our tactics can be transmuted and transformed into a project that is not spiritually materialistic, a project of worth. We must not become militant or dogmatic about our practice. The basic notions of egolessness and of pain, suffering, dukkha, help us understand that it is not a doctrine we are trying to study. Rather, it's an experience we are working on in ourselves. We are already involved in spiritual materialism to a certain degree, but we can transmute, transform, and surpass such materialism. That's what we're trying to do. The most important point about magic is that it cannot happen in the realm of spiritual materialism. Magic can only take place when you begin to transcend your potential for egomania. It can only take place when there's no ground and no security. According to the Buddha, the highest magic, real def definite magic, can only de develop from a non-theistic approach. The world is filled with magical energy. We, on the other hand, are filled with unmagical properties. <laughs> we do not understand who or what we are, and we think there's something to understand which makes us unmagical. We think everything has to be manual and dependent on pure karmic depth, as though you have to get in a bread line, and if you're at the end of the line, then the bread supply runs out and you're rejected too bad for you. Somehow in the realm of magic, things don't work that way. In the magical realm, there's an enormous abundance of energy in constant supply. It just keeps going. If you approach magic at a non-materialistic level, it is at your disposal. You can relate with such magic directly, constantly. You can transcend karmic consequences because they don't make any difference to you. 
Magic is available to you and you can work with it. Have you ever heard anything like that in any spiritual text, really, aside from, you know, magic of, uh, you know, lesser powers and using magic and Aleister Crowley and all that stuff? You know what? I, I don't think I've ever heard, like, a reference to the Buddha talking about magic. And I yeah. think what's interesting is it almost sounds like um, like what I heard in so much of the language there. And the key to him is always his language. Like, I love that you go from kind of like fortress all the way down to egolessness and unmagical and magical properties. But what I'm hearing is it's like the physics of the non-dual universe versus the physics of the dualistic universe or the physics of the materialistic and the manual and the mechanistic versus when you kind of let go of those levers and then other things are possible. Um, mm. Yeah, it's it's fascinating just to hear someone describe these invisible and tangible spaces that we work with, whether it's in the creative process of our daily lives or or whether it's um just inside of ourselves trying to sort out the the mess of me <laughs> yeah versus the the movie of me <laughs> yeah. how would you uh, maybe translate some of what he's saying particularly um what was he saying here um in the magical realm there's an enormous abundance of energy and constant uh supply and how would you relate that with some of the work that, that you are involved with, which is certainly to help transmute energy, period, mm. with people who are activating um, some of the things that are going to be as ubiquitous as dining room tables in the future, right? So with mm -hmm. that abundance, that knowing that that energy is there, and if especially coming from, obviously, uh, then, shall we say, to make it simple, and some of these terms is oversimplifying, but non-ego place. And there's no way you don't have an ego, but non-attachment ego place. How do you um, feel like that applies to some of the work and getting other others who are the deep, uh, influencers and um, producers of the kind of technology that is, is, as I say, going to be ubiquitous in the future, how do you bring them into a realization of magic? I don't know about the realization of magic, but I feel like there's what you were talking about with the abundance of energy. And even just as you were reading his words, um, it reminded me of actually a Caro, um, a Peruvian uh, practice. And they talk about working upstream in the energy. So if you stand in a river, like it's kind of a, um, it's a ritual. And where if you come upon a flowing stream or a river, or some body of water that's moving, um, the way that they understand their present, it, like the way that we understand our present and future, if like in the Western um, kind of North American space, if we were to stand in a river, we would say, well, the things in front of us are our future because it's where we're going. And then the things behind us are our past. And it's actually a reverse for the caro. And so when they stand in a riverbed, in the flow of life is what this practice is. It's to 
what's in front of you because it's what you can already see is actually your past. And the future is what's behind you as it flows from the mystery through into what's Mm. visible and tangible. So I love this kind of portal practice of working with movement and a moving element, because what you do is you stand with your back to the current of the river and you kind of surrender to letting it flow through you. Mm. And I feel like that visceral experience, that kind of simple moment of feeling the planetary wisdom kind of coming through you and letting go into your spot and all of that it is lovely because what it what it does is it says that that is the abundance of energy that's coming through we're just the pipe we're just the conduit how do we align ourselves with how do we kind of get like I love that saying it's like um more more wood behind fewer arrows. It's like, how do you align yourself in such a way where that mm. momentum tunnel of the inevitability of the collective kind of comes through you? And so when we think about, okay, well, how do we take kind of esoteric or mystic ideas like these and incorporate it into the work? I mean, Empathy Lab's real kind of the like the gisty statement of it is it's how are we taking our deep human and planetary wisdom and applying it to new models of intelligence and emerging technologies. And we work on everything from kind of AI, which is the most mysterious of all the new technologies um, and super crunchy hardware, um, you know, things. And that's kind of like, what are the the physical things, the atoms, um, that enable these like magical bits to kind of do what they do. And for me, it goes back to what, um, you know, Baba Ram Dass and what he gathered from Meher Baba with that. It's heart to heart to heart. Mm -hmm. I feel like the best work you can do in the space isn't necessarily to come up with some really brilliant, complicated vision of how to render the new technology, like Ray Kurzweil meets, you know, Gandhi or whatever. It's, it's actually, not the big, big, big things. It's it's the little, little, little things because it's in the interstices of this technology that our beliefs, our values, our hearts can kind of breathe. So the way that we work with that is really, it's, you know, and, and that kind of upstream concept I was talking about with the Caro is they say, if you go, if, if you're in the riverbed and there are boulders to move, you can get your whole family and the whole village together to try to move the boulder, which we all know, whether it's personal work or effort in the world, it's like, that just don't work. Um, And then what you can do is take the journey, the courageous journey um, upward or sort of Northern in the territory, which is go as far upstream as you can. And when you do that, if you find the right place at the source, you wiggle your fingers in the river there And then that builds the momentum as it works with the flow of the river to where it will move the boulder itself on your, on the kind of behalf of all there. And I think it's like these systems of entrainment. How are we working with the grain of ourselves? How are we working with the grain of um, wisdom? How are we working with, it's kind of what I was saying about what you read. It's like, there's a non-material physics and there's a material physics. And we look at questioning in in kind of a true inquiry way what are the materials that we're building with seen and unseen tangible and tangible bits atoms and how are they like kind of strung like an arrow to the sun where they're um they're working towards the thing that we kind of really want rather than 
um, just there's a lot of kind of technology for its own sake, a lot of invention because it's possible. And we're just in a different space where there's enough mystery inherent in these technologies where it's the it's the personal work. It's almost like using that boulder thing. How do you remove the stones from your own river as beings in the room making things? And how by removing the friction or the stumbling blocks or the obstacles to love and connection inside of ourselves, how can then that prepare us to be in the room in a different way where we can do the same thing for the technology? Yeah. Does the the boulder maybe an AI developer? Is that possible? <laughs> Tell me more. Tell me more, product designer Ragu Marcus. No. <laughs> no, I mean, Wait, when you say, me you know, you, there's no way you can purposefully move a boulder, uh, of course, without a, some really fancy equipment that you can't yeah, fly into another, the Grand Canyon. Another uh, robot helper. Yeah, right. But uh, but uh, something happens. with we, You mentioned the abundance of energy, and it comes through mm. you and just naturally moves that boulder, right? So mm. to me, it's an analogy for people who maybe don't want to step out of their known habitat in terms of um, inner knowledge, in terms of even thinking, wow, yeah, there could be something else that I don't know about. It's not all about atoms, and and it is all about atoms, but it's not about the way I relate to them, that there's some openness there that, wow, let me see what else happens when I interact with physical universe. And, but I don't know, is there a lot of developers that in your experience that think like that? Is there, or is it more the boulder and maybe you've got to become more of, uh, the energy is just being released off of you naturally and affecting someone by virtue of your own connectiveness with magic? Um, I feel like, I mean, we're humans, right? So everybody's got boulders <laughs> and everybody's got pebbles in their shoe. And and what I find is that, um, I think we talked about this a little bit last time. It's like, whether you're speaking the language of the, the social sciences or the chemical sciences or, um, you know, astronomy sciences, or, you know, it's like, whether you're speaking the languages of science or you're speaking the languages of deep humanity, or you're speaking the languages of nature, or you're speaking the language of spirituality, really, those are just our, you know, those are our channels. There are different tongues all leading to the same place. So what I find is like the first for me in terms of like just working with the material of this uh, non-magical and magical space because they coexist. It's like dark matter and matter, right? Mm. And so I feel like it's just what what Maybe not, to- by the way. Maybe not. I, I don't want to quickly agree there on something that uh, when Trump talks about magic and his, uh, w- he never actually defines it particularly as any one thing. So to me, it's yes. beyond magic, non-magic. It's beyond that scope of, of uh, polarity, basically. Yeah, well, I think if we were to... Yeah, if I were to get crunchy on it, I would probably say that um, magic would be the gravitational force 
amongst the magic and the non-magic. It's the interstitial, mm-hmm. that kind of liminal yeah, presence. Yeah, the gap. Yeah, that, the opening. That yeah. yeah. If I had to be a, yeah, if, if I tried to be a scientist of inquiry in Trunkla's lab, that would be my yeah. guess. But That's um, a good idea. That's a, <laughs> That's Europa the new lab. should have, yeah. That's the new lab. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to talk to, to uh, the man who is president and runs it in a couple of days. I'll mention it to him. Yes. Um, now I completely forgot what what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> no, we focus just, so much on the nothingness. The somethingness evades me. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just, you know, my curiosity around, because you you are working and have worked over many years with developers, particularly, and the first thing you said to me when we met in uh, Maui was, yeah, what I do is, I my purpose is to inform the developers of uh, our, shall we say, good human instincts around love, compassion, kindness, and how that can be instilled into the uh, algorithms that become an AI or whatever. And mm-hmm. I, so I'm still wondering how to get these people to understand the, first of all, the extraordinary importance of it for our future. I mean, you read all, I mean, Elon Musk is like, this is going to kill us. AI is going to kill it, you know, whatever he thought. Um, so, how how does one introduce this these concepts to somebody who may be a little bit of a heavier boulder, shall we say? How do we introduce that in a, in order to um, and not make them run the other way and make make it available in a spacious manner to consider at least curiosity, at least curiosity to look well. at. Yeah, I would say, I mean, a couple of things. The first is we we both know, and we know from all the teachers we have in common, it's like you can't make somebody get open. Open up, you know, you can't do it. <laughs> it's like, that, it's, that's not the job. The job is just to be a really welcoming presence and warm presence and a, a kind of safe space for people to, I mean, mm. for me, so much of the work isn't, how do I get you to understand this? It's actually just, how do I make a container where we can use the language of science to point to the things that science hasn't touched yet, that ancient wisdom has, that we know in our own hearts we can feel. Mm-hmm. And so kind of to that trunk of point on direct experience, it's like, how do you just create the set and setting for someone to look into themselves and to look into things in a way that isn't what the normal kind of whiteboard office desk you know, computer conversation would allow. So there's there's no element of force. I mean, believe me, I tried that in the beginning. I would like just talk till I was blue in the face about all these things. And <laughs> that was that was just a long time ago. It was like, oh, this doesn't work. Or people, people are like, well, that's lovely, but it's not theirs. It's just you and yours. And then that's not very helpful. Yeah. But I feel like the other thing is um it's it's having a conversation like I, I kind of mentioned this a minute ago, it's like have a conversation in someone's mother tongue. So, you know, in learning from Ram Dass and Franco Staseski and Roshi Joan and other people in the kind of uh, conscious dying space, mm, yeah. it's like actually the 
be a loving ear, be a loving rock, be refuge, Mm. like all Mm. of that translates. Or I look at like Bernie Glassman and the Zen peacemaker. And it's like the goal is to hold, to hold all of the polarity and to find the harmony within that. So I feel like we have these lessons from all of these great beings where it's like, Oh, okay. Well, if the goal is to, um, listen first so that I can gather the language and understand the direct experience of that person. This is where the emotional intelligence work comes in. You don't know someone unless you know their story. So knowing someone's story, knowing the why in the room rather than just the how or the what, it's like enables me to actually kind of sidle up energetically to where they are. And then when you're sharing a perspective, it's like, when you're coming at it from where they are, that kind of deeper empathy and resonance actually allows, you know, you to be sort of sitting next to each other, so to speak. And so you can look out at the vast horizon, or you can say, look at that dark cloud that freaks me out. Does that freak you out? How do we work with that? You know, it's just the, the, the first person to get vulnerable in a room where the container is safe is where, you know, I look at all of the conversations that are happening right now around, like, I heard this incredible interview with um, Jason Reynolds the other day, Krista Tippett, our friend, and Jason Reynolds talking about anti-racism and what he said that was so beautiful. She said, what's your definition of this? It's a, it it, it continues to be such an, uh, a provocative and incendiary topic. And it changes, the fire changes with every passing month or event that happens. And so he said, you know what, I, for me, anti-racism is just that muscle inside of us that says, um, yeah, it's the muscle that says we are humans together and I am human. And what that means to me is that there is more of you that's like me than, than is not. And I think it's like, you just look at these, these challenging topics that are uncomfortable where it's like, they're all, I mean, I look at like a place like Google or I look at all these big places or little places where it's like, well, this is how we need to talk about this now. And this is the language and here's the protocol. And what's funny is that's almost some of that unmagicality where the truth is, is the uncomfortable spaces of talking about what is to come when we cannot see it, when we're more in the mist than we are under the spotlight. Mm. You know, when we're not looking for the keys out in the street, we're under the street light, when we're (laughs) actually trying to find them in the place with no light. It's like just the ability to create some trust and point to the right thing in a room like that. And to say, hey, look, I'm, I don't know either. It's like then the awkward Mm. conversation, the uncomfortable conversation, the painful conversations have a frame versus the, I know, here's where I think we should go. I have the solution. I'm, I have these letters behind my name. So much of the environments I work in are kind of taking off that armor, that professional armor, that academic armor, that I'm the one who knows I'm the expert armor. And just saying at a human level, what is going on here? Or, wow, we never thought this would happen. Or look at that experiment that's happening. What do we think about that? Or, Mm. you know what? Oop, this, we don't like where this went. Okay, that's done. You know, it's the courage to look at things as they are. Yeah. You know, the loving rock thing, which is, as you said, came from Ram Dass's experience with working with uh, dying people. 
to be able to be in a room and not be uh, the rock part, not succumb to one's own polarized stuff around death and, of course, fear, and and being there for the person, being open and allowing that person to express themselves however they want and loving that. Um, boy, it's... A, it's a, as you were saying it, as you were speaking to it, I was thinking, yeah, we could use a little of that in our uh, national political dialogue and our tribal warfare that's going on right now. Very, very, very difficult because it's so incendiary and we have so many uh, belief systems around from one side to the other and uh, very tough. But I think that may be, uh, yeah, we should start pushing that out. Loving rock needs to happen here to uh, transform some of these crazy, crazy polarizations that are going on. Well, All the way to the vax thing, right? How about the... You I know, that, mean... There's always new material to yeah, bring us right. together, you know, yeah. that we think is actually a shearing force that you know, brings us apart. The invitation is, oh, this yeah. looks like separation. Yeah. How do we look beyond that? I think what's really cool, too, about the the idea of the loving rock and, hmm. yeah, and Viva Love the Loving Rock. It's like... Uh, <laughs> viva Loving let's, Rock. Viva. Elvis movie. Viva. Yeah. Uh. But what I, what I was going to say, though, is it, it can look... I think one of the real challenges of my work too isn't the technology. It's how it's how it's it's what are the many forms and flavors of integration? Because like so many of the conversations I have with people, like we had Mirabai and Ramesh the other week talking about being Ramdas. And what was so rad was, you know, we had people asking questions, and some people are asking questions about the path and about, you know, I feel like my you know, my kind of working self feels really far away from my spiritual path sometimes. And sometimes they feel closer and how do you do this and social action. And it was this really beautiful conversation Mm. where people got to just drop all the veils and be like, here's entirely who I am. Even if it's with this smaller set of people, which was still many hundreds of people, but it was like lovely for people to just drop it and say, this is the rub for me. How does this work for you? And by everyone saying, oh my God, me too, me too, me too. Mm. It was like, oh, well, integration, it's kind of like the little monk in the big city or leaving the cave. And that's why Mingyur Rinpoche is amazing. He snuck out and went to live in the world, you know? Yeah. It's like, how, how, what are the forms of loving rock? It doesn't have to dress in the clothes we immediately recognize. And so one of my favorite examples of a loving rock and a curious person creating, you know, new containers for conversation is this guy, Dylan Marin. He gave a Ted talk a few years ago, but his uh, podcast or his like YouTube series was literally conversations with people that don't like me. And what he found is he would do these things and people would tear him down and say all these nasty things. And he would call him on the phone and they would talk and they would always get to the place where there was more connected than wasn't. And I just love I'm like Dylan that wouldn't call that sadhana, but I don't care. That is beautiful dharmic work. That is absolutely is. And the other thing uh, you talked about, we are all human, and we all have the same aspirations, and we have to, you know, that's finding that complete common ground. So that meditation that we do at the retreat in in Maui, Amirbai does uh, just like me is mm. exactly 
Exactly. That. It's like His Holiness saying, we all want to be happy. We all want love. We all want community, and so on. And uh, so that's a good exercise as well. I, right. I do I do that at conferences. I spoke at a couple AI Did conferences. It? Yeah, and it's it's actually what's lovely is it's like you do the spirituality and science sandwich where it's like I'll talk about some really hardcore stuff and I'll be like, okay, come with me on the bridge. People are like, well, I believe that and I believe that and that scientifically sounds accurate and okay. And I know that author. And then you play the Baba video where it's like people drop from their rational minds, to their intuitive heart. And then you travel a little more in kind of the science and integration. And just like me is where I often end because you, your heart dissolves into that oceanic space of connection and mm. you can't not do it. Like I've actually had people write me, especially because so many conferences right now are virtual People write me and say, I did it with you. And mm. and it's this lovely thing where I'm like, again, to the magic. It's like there are always, there are the unseen forces that we can rely on to hold us. And I'm convinced that like that person knew they were looking at me and I hope they were getting it from me. But then also I'm like, I don't even know how that showed up in my life that yeah. day or that morning and some, when I got a shitty email or when, you know, something happens and you're challenged, it's like, who knows where the, the invisible support, or like you were saying, this abundance of energy, the, uh, to quote Joseph Goldsmith, the infinite supply arises. Mm. So here, here's another little thing from Trungpa. When you say to somebody, gee, it's so nice to be here in your house. What you experience is magic. Now he's defining magic. You feel profoundly good. You feel something real, some relationship taking place. You are sharing one half of reality, and somebody else is providing the other half of reality, so it begins to feel definite. That's our whole experience in India, Ananda. Mm. Really, I mean, I read this and um, I just think of how we were taken into people's houses and and immediately felt completely embraced and warm, like going into a hot tub and just letting go. And from their side, it was the biggest joy in the world that mm. they could provide that. And the the union of that is magic. And that, mm. that, that magic actually is pretty much what we've represented all these years, certainly when Ram Dass was in, in Maui, and we continue without him being in that body. And uh, that sense of the give and take, we are so happy to be here, and we are so happy that you're here. I, that's just so terrific. I really love that. Yeah. I remember that feeling so viscerally and clearly. It's like the the spaceship that builds the like the arc of the retreat experience is just yeah, it's, mm. a, it's a transcendence that everybody's on the everybody's in the spaceship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Trumpa goes on the. I mean, this is in the moment, everybody. I actually didn't read this chapter when I did this podcast because I couldn't <laughs> get to it. And I'm so happy because this is this phenomenal material. 
Uh, what we are doing here, and this is talking about the sharing of one half of reality is being there and feeling profoundly good, and the other one is providing the other half. So he says, what we are doing here is a performance of magic, a performance of magic and a miracle. It's mm. not that somebody has been zapped, has gone into a state of hysteria or a trance and has suddenly become a Buddha or has turned into a lizard. <laughs> Where does he think these things? We are talking about much more than that. Somebody happens to have turned into a true human being. This is all I care about. This is so great. Mm. This is who we mm. are. Before, we had doubts about whether we were human beings or not. We had enormous doubts. We did not know who we were. And now, everybody has turned into a human being, which is the greatest magic of all. You know what's so beautiful about that is, like, I, in, like, following the feeling of that, it's like, and you know, it reminds me of Baba's teachings with Emmanuel too. Like, why are you trying to get out of this human thing? Like take yeah, the take curriculum. The yeah. yeah. It's like, what's cool is like the, the real magic isn't to move beyond human being. It's to be a true yeah. human being. That's yeah. so yeah. juicy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Turned into, it makes me think of like, it's like the spiritual velveteen rabbit being, being loved into becoming real. You know what? We should do this. Is all going a little bit inside everybody out there, only meaning that uh, Ananda and I have been talking about putting on a retreat in 2022 through the foundation Love Serve Remember and around science and spirituality, the intersection of that. We are not going to call it that, everybody. <laughs> okay. Um, how, to, how, <laughs> how to be a true human being would be a yeah. better title. And I'm yeah. just thinking, you know, I'm just thinking this conceptually to address that to sort of both sides of the equation and make that the prominent rudder, shall we say, mm. throughout what it is that we're trying to share might be a great idea. Well, I think this, like this, um, this illusory dichotomy thing of magic, non-magic, real, not real, material, yeah. immaterial. It's like we're pointing to the seen and unseen forces that animate our lives and that animate the nature and the very nature and being of incarnation. So yeah, the idea of turning into true human being, their true human being kind of science of love. It's like, I think, again, it's like the, the idea of how do you, it's, it's like, um, love and emptiness too. I remember that from one of my first retreats being so moved by that discussion because it was like in mm. the vast embrace, there's everything and nothing and that you can participate in your trajectory towards one or the other, or really what is both um, in whatever way feels easiest to you. I remember Sharon saying that. I love that. And I think like in terms of the truth Science is meant to be the revealing of truth. And of mm. course, the nature of truth changes depending on our instruments. But when we look at technology uh, as instruments of seeking, that's where seeking unconditional love, <laughs> seeking the truth, it's like same, same. Love everyone, tell the truth. Same thing if you uh, have the right lens 
in the scientific space. Mm. And I think that's where the more expansive your heart and mind are together, the more you're actually open to the possibilities that unfold themselves. And, you know, circling back to AI, it's like, I remember having a learning curve there where in the beginning I was like, I was not great at math and this is very hard for me to understand. And conceptually I get it. And I'm going to use all of my human frames to understand it and all of my scientific frames to understand it. But what was funny is I talked to my boss, who's one of those like planetary brain genius people. He's a computational neuroscientist Hmm. and just a Renaissance being. He's incredibly lovely. He's still there by the way, your boss? Still there. He's still my a uh, generous benefactor, but truly yeah. he's a, he's a, um, a partner in expansion. His name's Blaise Aguera Iarcas. He's worked with creativity and wait, that was machines. too fast. If we want to get him, honor him a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Blaise Aguera Iarcas. And oh, he, wow. um, I remember saying to him, well, what happens when this happens? And well, how do you train the machine to do this? And how do you refine the data set in such a way where it is unbiased and diverse and, 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 and. And what was so cool is he was like, these are the things we do know. And these are all the things that we don't. And what I loved is it was like the sign of the greatest intelligence in people that are designing things for the future are the ones who say, this is the part that is the vast mystery. And they're not mm. afraid of it. They embrace it. And so is say that, we all in the contemplative space. Is that fairly common in the people that you've been working with embracing the mystery is a big word it's 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 not nothing i don't think that they would use that kind of Uh contemplative poetic language they would more say i don't know and i think you know the idea of like i don't know mind you know beginner mind that's good that's that's probably a little closer um the poetic kind of uh mystical human heart part is just it's what keeps me going but um everybody's on their spectrum Yes. Yeah. Uh, let's just uh, emptiness, which is as soon as that comes up, that's a toughie, big time. Okay, because there is a big association with that term, even within Buddhist uh, philosophy, of nihilism, of mm-hmm. notness, mm-hmm. and uh, and Robert Thurman, who has been with us on different retreats, is close to us, uh, has the most beautiful definition of it. The womb of bliss. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is not nihilism, and and certainly to inhabit that space is is to follow Trungpa Rinpoche's <laughs> instructions about uh, magic here and cynicism and magic and uh, oh and so yeah, I wanted to make I always want to make that note, especially uh, because it's easy to fall into something that's just absolutely does not represent that Buddhist term. Um, oh, and you and we talked about okay, there's magic and non magic you know, all the polarizations that we we've been talking about. So here I, I found his definition. We are not talking about black and white. Mm. We're talking about total magic, which transcends black and white magic. Black magic's trying to destroy your enemy and create constant chaos. And white magic is trying to create lots of wealth and power. Black magic is for destruction and white magic is for prosperity. We are not talking about magic at that level. That kind of magic is like a children's story, which reminds me of how um, people were talking about different saints in India when we were with Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji, and they would... Uh, 
you know, these great miracles that they could perform. I mean, the, the, the powers, cities that they had, you know, and they were telling Maharaji, he said, yeah, you know, they used to have, like, uh, ages ago, uh, they'd have sadhus who'd come and do magic contests. It was fun. <laughs> it was like, completely, this is not what it's about, which is what he's saying. That kind of magic is like a children's story, and we go for that, especially in mm. the West, because mm-hmm. we've never experienced anything like this stuff. And uh, what we are talking about, Trumpa says, is a fundamental, all-pervasive magical quality. It does not belong to the logic of good or bad, but to the totality of existence. Therefore, magic is always available to us. You don't have to counteract somebody's powerful magical ab- ability with your own. It is self-existing. Mm-hmm. Right on, huh? Mm-hmm. One of the most difficult things is is we talk about this stuff. We we realize uh, there is a path, and then we have to step on it and <laughs> move, like in walking meditation, slowly, one foot in front of the other, completely consciously with full mindfulness. And Trumpa takes it further in terms of meditation. I don't know what this, there was, he has a beautiful thing about meditation. I don't know if I could find it, but basically um, it's not about, uh, what does he say? I don't, yes, um, surfing. Yeah, I went and did my meditation today. I was surfing or I, he said, this is not anything to do whatsoever with meditation. He's very fierce mm-hmm. about the sitting, being able to sit with oneself and get uh, into at least one-pointedness through um, insight meditation, basically, that Joseph mm-hmm. and Sharon and Jack brought back. Mm-hmm. And and then being able to 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 really get self-aware, but it's through definitive discipline. I mean, he's very fierce about that. He was that with everybody, even though, you know, on on his ex- the external of it all with him, I mean, we used to sit there and he'd drink sake, giving a talk. It was so clear and precise, yeah. but then he'd, he'd, even if he was slurring, it was clear and precise. Mm-hmm. This is not someone to... Uh, basically follow in that way because this this being in my mind had transcended a lot of duality i mean i wouldn't mm-hmm. really know with him but um but the clarity with which he spoke about the practice of meditation was absolutely um without question uh, something that's difficult for us in the west that kind of and discipline and yeah, very it's uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Yeah. We love comfort. We love shiny. We love things that make things more interesting. We want the entertainment form of all these things. Yeah. And I, it's kind of why I love his ferociousness is it's like to, to put the hot blade through our consciousness, you, you need the rigor, you need the blade. And, mm. um, yeah, it's like I'm I'm a huge fan of the poetic and the blooming and the lovely and the gentle practices and all of that. But the yeah. truth is, is yeah. my real work comes in the, when you're really struggling with yourself or when you're struggling with something mm. that's challenging. It's the it's that like 
hot blade of discernment for me that helps me cut through um, what is the slippery egoness. I love, I mean, I love him as a representation of all of that is because the slippery dance of what looks to be ego is what his performance is. And then the blade of consciousness is right through the center of that. So you just can't Mm. escape it. It's so disarming. Yeah. I did find the thing he said about meditation when somebody asked, well, how does meditation different from introspection plus Mm -hmm. breathing? (laughs) You know, and I think, yeah, I think I'm a pretty mindful person who's got a lot of introspection going on. And, you know, and he said, well, that's not meditation. (laughs) Meditation simply means you should sit in a particular fashion, straighten your back, (laughs) do nothing, work with your breath and follow the discipline. It's very simple. We're not talking about meditation as a casual handling of reality. Casual handling of reality. So we could glide in midair. We're talking Mm. about meditation in terms of serious work, actually putting (laughs) in our effort and time and energy and doing it wholeheartedly, properly, precisely. You sit on your cushion and you do it. You may be tempted to listen to music and sit or sit sunbathing on your front lawn, thinking it's meditation or go to Acapulco and swim or skydive. (laughs) These things are not regarded as meditation. We have so many problems and complications. So we Mm. need to simplify things. The sitting practice of meditation is the only way to get your head together, as they say, or your foot together. (laughs) Whatever. You have to sit and actually do it. You have to follow this particular technique and discipline. There's no other way. You can't philosophize, Isla, you can, oh, God, do we all do that? Oh, this doesn't mean that the rest of life is anti-meditation. You can work with meditation in action once you have the experience and discipline, and you can handle long stretches of sitting. But I would recommend not experimenting with any other things before you have developed this discipline. So he's very... You know, and and uh, our little, you know, where we come from, where we were, Maharaji didn't tell us to do anything or teach us yeah. anything. Um, um, you know, my famous thing, well, how do I meditate, Maharaji? And he said, well, meditate like Christ. When he was nailed to the cross, he felt no pain, only love. You know, beyond anything I could ever think that I could accomplish yeah. in any lifetime. Yeah, like Christ. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but, uh, and, and we all ended up doing, you know, Southern Buddhist practice of Vipassana meditation. And he was like, just, oh, uh, you're going to the course, he'd say in English, a course in English, course. Mm. And off we'd go and come back like, you know, and I've told this story a million times. I came back once from the course and he said, well, now you know how to meditate? So I said, yeah. If there was three or four of us and we went, he said, well, do it. And so we all sat up straight and <laughs> like a iron rod in our back and we did it. And he's sitting around with a bunch of other Indians. And uh, as soon as uh, within five or 10 seconds, there was this high peeling laughter. Look, they know how to meditate. So that's the level of, of obviously where we're at, you know. I mean, Krishnadas tells these stories also um, of uh, not being a big meditator, although it's not quite true because I do know that he he has used his practice and sits with the Tibetan teachers all the time. Uh, but um, we are not great meditators, those of us that come from this bhakti tradition, 
I mean, there are some serious ones like Danny Goldman, you know, and Danny who's so been so close to his holiness and, and to the Tibetan teachings, and many others of us, including Lama Surya Das, who did two three-year meditation retreats. So mm-hmm. um, uh, I, th- I, I would just say to everybody when they hear this stuff and go, yeah, there's no way. I mean, because the guy who started out the, <laughs> the question that he answered, who was a QA, I find meditation very boring and irritating. So I think there's a lot of people of us out there that do find that or, uh, you know, are in this, in that I personally have gotten through it because I don't pay attention to myself as much as I used to. And it's more like that. And I just do it because I do want to know myself way better. I do want to be able to get to a point where I actually can um, communicate, uh, not communicate, but um, be in uh, Neem Karoli Baba's heart space and connect in that way. So I, I have the motivation, and motivation is a big thing too. So, uh, what I find interesting about the meditation stuff, and I love that we're talking about this because it's refreshing to just be able to be like, I'm, I'm terrible at this. <laughs> Is there, I went to a meditation retreat, it was a smaller one, there were about like 20 people there, and it was really lovely, wonderful teacher. And what was Funny was everyone went around in the beginning in the introduction circle and was like, I'm this person. I've been meditating for 4,000 years. Mm. I work with these teachers. These are my practices. Mm. And by the time it got to me, I was like, I've been pretending to meditate for 25 years. I don't even know if I'm even close to the idea of the glimpse of the, I'm like, I just, I've been sucking at meditation for 25 years. And then I have other practices that I try, but I don't know what it is I'm doing. You know, I mean, like you do, you follow the teacher and everything else, but it's, it's a funny thing to say, like, I, I am this, I'm like, I, I pretending at feels so much more accurate to me. And I think what's beautiful though, is you, I, I pretend often enough that I hope that in the kind of, um, especially in what's so beautiful about kind of Ramdas and friends or the the circle that is, you know, part of this satsang. It's a satsang and a sangha. It's all, it's just, we all need to be here together um, doing this work. And, but it's lovely that it includes so many different doorways or facets of seeing all of this, because I feel like my practice pretending at meditating actually equips me to, when I sit down and do loving awareness meditation, my heart feels different. So this is where that's that space of magic. I don't know what's going on in there, but I know something is afoot. And that's where I just put my faith in that. And yeah. I keep showing up because I, uh, I, need, I need to practice. I need to practice, even if it's just pretending. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, listen, the big thing Maharaji said to one of our mentors, Casey Tiwari, at one time, Casey went, he was just walking somewhere and he said, you know, this is all bullshit. However, he said that. Uh, they used, to, <laughs> of course, Maharaji did speak in that language quite a bit, using language. But uh, Casey, this is bullshit. Practice, what? You, you know, repeating mantras, nothing happens. It's ridiculous. Something like that, right? And <laughs> Maharaji said, you are absolutely 100% right. But you keep doing it. And then that one time that it becomes real. Mm-hmm. One time. So you mm-hmm. keep doing it. So as you just said, I, 
yeah, I'm fake meditating for a long time, but then you had the one time through loving kindness meditation, loving awareness meditation, and that's really what it is. And you got to be highly motivated to, to as Trumpa says, get real with it. That's why I love him. He's just so... He, I mean, am I going to be the guy that's going to... I mean, I have sat real retreats, meditation retreats, and sat for a long time, you know, is that... I. I'm all about actually, and the more I think about it, because we're you know we're we're going to be getting together and the board of the Love Server Member Foundation. What are we doing in the future? And that's, you know all that kind of stuff that boards do. And and I'm thinking, okay, what's the one thing that I would want to be part of going into the future? Community, providing that as much as we can, above anything. That's the way I feel about it. And. Uh, uh, the kind of sustenance that people get from satsang, um, the the way in which you know we do these retreats and Mirabai can do her just like me thing, where you know you turn to the whoever it is right next to you and uh, and do this exercise of different questions of just basically we find out we're just like me, and then the greatest example of that just like me was we were in India with Ramdas. I don't know if I ever told you this, Ananda. And we were doing a retreat. Maharaji sent us all up into the Himalayas to do a meditation retreat. And that was a whole other crazy thing that happened. And um, so we ended up in this uh, Gandhi ashram, actually, mm. which was, uh, you know, where he had written one of his books. It looked right up, right across from the whole horizon of 26, 7, 8,000 foot Himalayas, right? It was mm. extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And so we all had a room and Ramdas had a room and he said, do this exercise You'd sit right in front of him, eyeball to eyeball, and you'd go. He would say, "Whatever it is that you're afraid to speak, mm. say it now." So everyone would, all this garbage would come out, and but the people next door and down because it was India. They didn't. There's no insulation or anything. They heard everything. <laughs> So we all got to know. We all had the same talk about just like me. You know, it's all around sexual bullshit, basically. That's what people are the most afraid of, right, uh, for the most part. So, um, yeah, the way in which we understand that with each other is a great uh, both starting point, midpoint, and end point, yeah. being able to do yeah. that. So yeah. like we're doing it right now. Well, and speaking about the, I think what's interesting, I don't think I put this together too, but hearing Trump uh, speaking to the, or effing the ineffable magic and being able to put things to it, it makes me realize that that, that um, saying, you know, I think it was Tegnaha, but I've, I've, Every time I say who I think it is, it ends up being someone else. So I have <laughs> no idea who to said it, but somebody said that the next Buddha will come in the form of a Sangha. And then there's that great, you know, kind of actually my namesake, Ananda, you know, saying to the Buddha, Buddha isn't friendship and community. Half of the path says, no, Ananda, you're wrong. It's the whole path. And part of me thinks there's that, or when, you know, when two or more gathered, it's like there's a reason that there are so many different sayings of this one thing, which is when you get together, I'm convinced that's where you, then the magic knows to creep in. It knows yeah, to reveal itself beyond whatever bullshit that there. you're living in, in that yeah. moment. It's this the most powerful thing, 
And then yeah. that drives you to want to engage that within yourself more mm-hmm. and more and more. And that's where meditation or chanting, you know, real practices that uh, um, yeah. convert. I love, I love that you just said that because, you know, I hadn't actually turned. It's like as above, so below, as outside or as inside, so outside. But when I when I think about the inner sangha or satsang, we think of all of the selves inside of us, all the shadow, mm-hmm. all the light, mm-hmm. all the, all the history, all the lineage, all the hope for the future. You know, it's like, there's, there are so many voices inside of us too. And so cultivating, cultivating the cohesion and integration of the inner <laughs> satsang is actually a beautiful yeah. way of looking at that work. Yeah. Yeah. You could say, Hey, come on, guys! Let's all get together. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we can one at a time. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. We're human. It's okay. You know, a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we're at the end of our sponsors' allotted time for this show. Like we're on CBS. Ran out of timelessness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and thanks for being here, Ananda. And uh, we hope to see more of you, even though we might have forgotten the last time we saw you. Um, I told Ananda, okay, I'm doing too many podcasts at this point. Uh, (laughs) But I love them, and I love hanging out with you. And um, everybody, this is Mind Rolling on BeHereNowNetwork.com. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com, and tremendous opportunity to hear a bunch of different messages and podcasts from teachers and thought leaders. Uh, And, you know, we're encouraging Ananda to think about maybe joining us in that way Mm -hmm. because there's a, yeah, speaking, certainly speaking to the future in terms of what is so rapidly happening around particularly, of course, AI um, is a, an extremely important topic. Everything that's been going on with these social media companies. See, we could go on about the blockchain too. You know, that's a whole other thing where uh, metaverse, that now they're uh, meta is now Facebook, but then the metaverse through the blockchain and all of that's pretty interesting too. That'll be our next thing. We need two T's in there, not one. Metaverse, yeah, right. with two exactly. T's. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, boy. Thank you. Thank you again. And everybody, we'll see you next week on Mind Rolling. Thank you. Ram, ram, love, love.